Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Chris Ruland. He's the founder and CEO of Phosphorus. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Selfishly, I've been very interested in kind of the cybersecurity space for, for a long time now, but I've spent a bunch of time kind of recently learning more and more about it kind of on my own time. But maybe before we get into all that stuff, let's get to know you a little bit better and uh, start off with where you grew up. Sure. I grew up in uh, Northern Virginia. Okay. And, um, uh, you know, as growing up, uh, I uh, ran a paper route, probably starting when I was about 10 years old. That was my source of income until I graduated high school. Okay. And um, that enabled me to support my hobby, which was uh, computing and computers. And so I started off, I was lucky, I think in 1985, my mother came home with an IBM PC nice. for her business, her home-based business. So I, I got a nice one to start with. And then, of course, I needed my own equipment. So <laughs> that funded my, uh, my Apple IIe, my nice. Atari ST, my <laughs> series of my Hayes modems. Nice. And then ult- my ultimate was my next station I bought when I was 18 for $3,200 on the student discount. Wow. So um, That was so, a lot yeah, of money I, back then. Well, it's a lot of money that now, was, but like that's, that was a lot of money back then. Oh, it was like I paid an $800 car and a $3,200 computer. <laughs> so so I, like, I, I'm definitely like a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, man. So – you went to university. What did you take and why? I could probably guess what you took, but but what did you take? Well, okay, so saying I went to university is a bit of a stretch. I okay. went to college for a year okay. at George Mason University. Got you. I actually started my senior year of high school. I'd kind of gone through, exhausted all the classes. So I they let me go part-time to take some computer science classes at George Mason University. Interesting. And I stayed on there for about a year. And um, uh, I got recruited to work at do cybersecurity work pretty early on in the in the defense and intelligence industry okay. in the in the, the Northern Virginia area. So I dropped out of college and worked. Um, my first job, full time job, was actually at the State Department. Wow. Um, uh, building and securing computer networks there, and I bounced around. Um, the defense community as well a little bit. And I was finally recruited when I was 21 to um, take a job up on Wall Street. Um, so I, I took a job up at Lehman Brothers. And that okay. was my first kind of my first real big boy job. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, coming to work at, you know, wearing a suit, being there at 7 a.m. and really working with some of the most intelligent minds, not only in that, but in finance. And, um, it was a great place for a young person 
um, to uh, cut their teeth, right? Because sure. you've got no obligations, no family. You all, all you really do is work. And, and so um, at that phase of your life, it's something, you know, I really recommend to young people if they're not, they don't want to do a startup is, uh, you know, go work in that finance industry for five or 10 years. And because you get the best resources and the best exposure to whatever part of that industry uh, you want to have access to. And so that was really my developed my career. I did later in life, go back to college. Okay. And that's a, an interesting, different story. Sure. Um, so in, um, I'm one of three graduates in the history of the Georgia Institute of Technology to graduate with a master's degree with no undergrad degree. Interesting. How did you pull so that I, off? <laughs> I took, I took, I, I took the Dean of the College of Computing out to lunch okay. and, uh, 2004 so i was in my early 30s at the time and i said look i need to i needed a college degree like okay. i can't i can't can't, can't go further my, i felt like i couldn't go further in my career without a degree okay he said yeah i kind of thought you'd ask for that he's like look you're undergrad like you basically dropped out of college like we can't admit you okay i'm like that's Hey, I don't want a bachelor's degree. I want a master's degree. And that really Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) And uh, I want a master's degree. Like, okay, like, explain this to me. I said, well, you know, this guy in 1957, this guy in 1978, they both got master's degrees in Georgia Tech with no undergraduate degree. My CV um, shows I've done the equivalent amount of work of a bachelor's degree in computer science. I want a master's. And so, it went to the state level, to the Board of Regents, and they approved me what was called special non-degree seeking. So they basically they let me into the master's program to see how I would do. Wow. And, and like, it, the first semester, like, totally knocked me on my butt. Like, really? Because I was, I, I was the CTO of a billion-dollar company, Internet Security Systems, <laughs> and, and it's not like they had night classes, right? This right. is, like, this is... And I'm competing with a bunch of 22-year-old kids, and this, and I, I had a young family, and this is my full-time and a full-time job. So I basically negotiated to get an office down at move my office to Georgia Tech. Wow! So I could like I didn't have to drive back and forth to class. So I could walk to class, and that made a huge difference. And you know, I ended up getting straight A's. And after kind of being knocked knocked around a little bit and shocked at first, and um, after a year, I saw my commitment, and faculty voted and uh, admitted me in as uh, as into the into the master's program. And so I walked in 2007 when I was uh, 35 years old with a, a master's degree from Georgia Tech, and around with a bunch of kids. And I subsequently joined the faculty and taught there, and um, it was a great experience. And I love the school for that. Wow, that's really cool, man. So. Walk me through kind of all the stuff you're doing now, because from from what I understand is you're you're doing a ton of stuff plus phosphorus, correct? No, I'm I'm really focused on phosphorus. Okay, so I've, I've, this is this is my third cybersecurity company I have founded, and um, the first one. So I left uh, Lehman Brothers in the late nineties to join internet security systems and, sure. and built a real, a really well known cybersecurity team. They're called the X force. Sure. Um, I'm really proud of that. It's, it's really, and we sold our company to IBM. It's really the only part of that company that persists within IBM is the IBM X force. So I'm really wow. proud of that sure. achievement. And, um, 
being part of the big company wasn't for me at the time. And sure. so I, I kind of, you know, founded this company literally in my basement with a couple guys and, um, got it funded and got it up to, it's now worth over a half billion dollars. It's the most valuable, uh, wow. venture back company in the state of Virginia. Wow. Congrats. And, um, yeah. And then, um, you know, it got to a size at which it was time to bring on a real professional operator. And, and I worked with my board to do that. Okay. And I took a little time off and, uh, besides being obsessed with cybersecurity, I'm also a ham radio operator. So I found this oh, confluence of, of radio and cybersecurity uh, called software defined radios. Okay. It basically software defined radios um, are like kind of building packet sniffers, sure. but they're packet sniffers for the radio spectrum. Yeah. yeah and yeah. they allow you, they allow you to suck in giant amounts of the radio spectrum and so I came, I'm like, okay, I got this packet sniffer for the radio spectrum. Now, what's the security application? And so we basically kind of built what was in, for network terms, would be called a network intrusion detection system. I formed a new company called Bastille, focused on um, sniffing the radio waves to sure. look for kind of cybersecurity issues that wouldn't show up on the network. So all of the like all of the devices that would show up in an enterprise that, that you wouldn't see on your network. And so we found interesting things like devices that would be stuck between a keyboard and a computer that would sniff all the keystrokes and send out a GSM transmission every morning at two AM. Wow. Right? Just weird weird stuff like that that you could never find with any other type of tool. Sure. And so um we got that company going and funded and, and um for recruiting, I did something very unique at, at Bastille, which was to um, uh, I, I, uh, DARPA had a, a challenge uh, using these software-defined radios. Okay. And so um, I and, and the challenge was around the military applications. Basically, the military was trying to solve a diff, totally different problem, right? They're trying to solve this problem in Afghanistan right. around IEDs because IEDs are detonated typically with a radio device, usually a uh, phone. Interesting. So they got to jam all the radio signals around your convoy, but they still have to allow you to talk on the radio. So how do you do this? How do you Interesting. create create a protected radio bubble, but allow the people inside the bubble to talk out? It's it's a real hard problem. I, I can imagine. <laughs> and so Dar DARPA did what you know. I love what DARPA is doing now. They crowdsourced it. Okay. Interesting. And so and, and they basically put out a million dollar reward. Wow. And so all these all these universities applied, and Georgia Tech I think got second place. So I went to the guy at Georgia Tech. I hired him. I said, "Okay, now go get the guy who won, and get the guy who got third place and fourth from Boeing, and fourth place, you know, from the Southern University, and fifth place was you know this individual kid." Okay. And uh, so we hired DARPA crowdsourced problem. They got what they wanted. I went and hired everybody that won, and that's, that's how smart. I built my team. And um, uh, so. Um, so that's best deal. That's going great too. And, and, uh, again, got kind of up and running up to speed. And, and I found this kind of confluence of, of what, what really we were solving at the seal was this internet of things problem, but the, on the wireless IOT devices. Right. Um, but a lot of IOT devices are actually kind of on the network in a normal fashion. And so I'm, I'm really, you know, I have this cybersecurity, obsession i love wireless stuff but it really comes down to things i love 
things that are connected. I love these little computers that are wrapped in shiny plastic that are connected to our networks, and they're yeah. just like they're growing like rabbits. And so that's what this is really about is like the IoT. And one of my investors at um, my first startup, Endgame, a guy named Chris Darby, he's a you know, incubator. I remember where I was. I was standing in my office, and he, he said this term, Internet of Things, to me in, it was in like uh, October of 2010. Like, okay. That's a moment to me. I know, I know where I was standing when he said it to me. I was like, wow, Internet of Things. That's what I want to do. Like, Internet's done. Internet of Things is new. That's, that's, what, I wa- that's what I want to be doing. And so, so my work really since probably that, since 2010 has really been, I get really excited about this IoT issue. And so they're making it easier to get excited about and dovetail into my other skill sets, which is around cybersecurity, because we have billions of these devices being deployed yep. and no one really is thinking about security. It's a total afterthought. Yeah. And um, um, to put it in perspective, the, the first cybersecurity startup I, I joined with public internet security systems, the one we sold to IBM uh, in 2006 for, I think, a billion six. Wow. Um, when, we, when that company started, there were a million computers on the internet, and that sure. was a big deal. Now yeah. we're looking at, like, you know, by 2020, 50 billion IoT devices. So orders of notation of a bigger problem. Sure. Well, I think just even I was – I got a new router and – or, sorry, modem – um, installed, uh, I don't know, within the last year or so at at my home and, and the cable company had to come out and do it. And they're basically, the guy told me that the average home can have up to like 60 devices connected to that router at any given time. So I, I think a lot of people don't think about how many devices they just have in their own home, Never mind the enterprise, right? And obviously the enterprise is Everybody brings a laptop and a phone and maybe a tablet. So each person might have three computers connected. Fair? Yeah, absolutely. And and um, and so so really, the, you you kind of nailed it. Like the consumer, we call the consumer enterprise looks sure. like a small to medium business did a couple of years ago. Yeah. And a small to be small to medium business now looks like an enterprise, and an enterprise looks like a carrier. Yeah, totally interesting. So I'm curious then, how did you come up with the idea for Phosphorus and what exactly is it? So Phosphorus is uh, our products. We've got a consumer product and an enterprise product and the consumer product we're giving away. Okay. Uh, we just got accepted into the app store like two days ago. Oh, congrats, man. Dinner and I got, I got the notification. So we're in test flight. We're giving out beta yeah, yeah. invites. Sure. and sure. Uh, I'll give you a link to uh, for the show to, I, to have uh, beta beta invites at the, at the end. Sure. Um, and um, uh, the thesis, the reason is I picked the name P was for patching because we're patching. Okay. So the the, the, goal, the we do much more than patching, but the goal was to build a company to help secure the internet things, whether it's an internet enterprise or a small small business or consumer space. The, there is no there's no product you can go out today like you can go out in the enterprise and buy a half dozen products to keep your Windows computers up to date or sure. um, in the consumer space you can buy antivirus to protect your PCs or even uh, mobile device management software to secure your phones and your tablets but there's nothing to secure everything from your Alexa to your Philips light bulb and there's a real simple reason for that because it's near impossible to run software on those things. Yep. 
And so whereas with, you know, you can install McAfee or, or Symantec or pick your favorite AD for your PC, you can't run and install software ubiquitously across the IoT. So IoT security is hard, and you have to think about it like a hacker because it's, it's got to be agentless. Yeah. So we have to provide the same functionality that cybersecurity software does for PCs or phones, but we have to do it without running any software on the endpoint. And so that's a hard challenge, and that's where we've got a bunch of patents around, around doing agentless software updates to endpoint devices. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think what you guys are doing makes a lot of sense. And I was playing with the Android version uh, last night and actually this morning. Um, it, the thing that's interesting to me about it is how simple it is to use, right? Because I, like I mentioned to you earlier, um, I've been spending some time kind of in Kali Linux playing with some of the, the nerd tools, either the GUIs or the command lines to do basically what you guys do with just l letting me hit a button and basically saying, refresh my network, right? where you would potentially need to learn a bunch of these tools, constantly be running them. Um, they're constantly changing. They're, but you basically just handle that for me in a really, really simple GUI that anybody can use. Is that fair to say? That's, that was our goal. So, um, you know, you're some of the earliest user feedback I'm getting. So that's great to hear that you found it easy to use. And the metaphor I use is, you know, that, that I have one slide that describes the company. It's basically we're, we're, we're the update all button for the IFT. Interesting. And, um, and update all is now like it's a verb. <laughs> it's vernacular. Yeah. You know, yeah, my yeah. mother-in-law knows what update all means because, you know, five or ten years ago, civilians and consumers know that, you know, they had to update software or maybe they did. Um, but today, everybody, if they ever go to their settings button, they're going to see they have a bunch of updates. Yeah. But there is no update all button for IoT. And that's what I've invented with Phosphorus. And that's what um, I, I, I want to be. I want to be the update all for the IoT. Sure. So just for people to really get what happens do you want to kind of explain, I, I launched the app, then what happens and what do I do? Sure. So what, what happens is you launch the app either for iOS or for Android. And what, what our product does is um, it does a very lightweight scan of the network to see what's out there. Um, and we use, uh, we take some information. No, there's no PII or personal information gathered. Right. but information about what the devices look like. And then we use machine learning in the cloud to actually accurately identify those devices. Mm, and then we can match them up with information we grab from banners and other things to sure. determine the version of software or firmware they're running. And if they're out of date, we also do what's called a, de a default credential check. So we'll tell you if you haven't changed the password for something, ah, good. you should go you should go ahead and do that because a lot of people, um, a lot of people don't change the passwords for things, yeah. and that's why we've got a lot of. That's really the number one problem for IT security today, and the easiest to fix is the um, is is changing default credentials, and so we're allowing people to do that. And then one feature you'll see in our application shortly is you know if you'd like to store that in your the credential manager of choice that you have for your mobile device will allow you to do that. So you can 
they do a pretty good job, you know, cryptographically securing those passwords. And if, you know, if you're willing to store your bank account password in the chain, certainly we think it's good enough for your IoT devices. Um, and it's definitely better than whatever it came, came with. And the problem is so bad that the state of California recently signed into legislation that in 2019, IoT devices cannot have a default password. The password has to be unique to the default device. Yeah. The password has to be unique to the device and has to be changed upon installation. Interesting. Now, I'm not a big I'm not a big fan of legislation, but the fact that California thought it was so bad they had to make a law for it to me yeah. indicates that the problem is bad enough that there's probably room for a couple software companies to solve it automatically for you too. Yeah, no, I I 100% agree with you. So, walk me through the process uh, it gives me a list of all the devices I have connected to the network, and it tells me very clear if it's secure or, you know, alerts found, right? Obviously, I don't need to do anything if uh, the device is secure. I can get more information about uh, the device, and you actually provide quite a bit of information. I'm actually just got on the app right now. But what happens when your app finds an alert. How do I actually go about viewing that alert and actually fixing that device to make it secure? So there, there are two types of alerts that you'll be seeing today. One would be um, uh, out-of-date software. Okay. And, and one would be uh, default credentials. Got you. So for the default credentials, you'll need to log into that device with your computer today and change the username and password. And at, down the road shortly, probably by the time we're generally available, we'll allow you to use the app to change, to change that to whatever you'd like to and then store it into your iOS or Android keychains. Got you. Um, the harder thing we do is we'll actually, if you have, if you have a device that says out-of-date software, yeah. you can click on that and there'll be a button that says Auto Magic Update. And if you click on that, we, we store the latest firmware for those devices with a cryptographic checksum um, in, the, in our CDN or in the cloud. Right. And we, the, your mobile device will pull that firmware update from us and apply it to that device. Interesting. And if, if necessary, reboot that device and it will update it. And then it will no longer show up as red. There's no, no more security issues. Um, some products are complicated in that there's a specific path. So you can't just update the latest. You might have to do three updates before you can be at the latest version. So we'll handle all those updates for you. Interesting. So that's a lot of work on your guys' end to make it as simple as you guys have made it so far, correct? It is, it is a lot of work. <laughs> and, to, and to do so without the advantage of having software running on the target, yeah, is is that's the hard part, and that's that's where the secret sauce is. Okay, interesting. So I, I'm curious then to know how are you guys gonna move this into business enterprise side of things? Sure. So the kind of if you if like the uh, I might date myself, but if we call the the iOS and Android versions of Phosphorus the Pocket Edition, if you will, sure. the enterprise. The enterprise edition is much different. Okay. Um, it, it's not possible for an iPhone or a Galaxy to scan Class B network, right? Sure. 
we can't scan two to the 16th devices. It's just too big. Right. Um, and honestly, those networks get scanned all the time anyway by the security teams. So, so what we do is we listen passively to network traffic and can observe IoT devices passively. We don't want to be another scanner on the network. Right. So we can find those devices, one, by passively listening to network traffic, and two is by um, integrating with the popular scanners out there today. So the market leaders are companies like Tenable and uh, Qualys. Um, uh, there are a few others out there as well. Rapid7 is a good one. Uh, so between those three, I think it's probably 80% of the market for, for vulnerability scanning. So we can use their APIs. What those products do is they constantly scan the network for new devices gotcha. and vulnerabilities, and they generate kind of a phone book report, if you will. And my thesis is if you're, if you're building a cybersecurity product today, you don't want to create any more work, right? You right. want to make work go away. So sure. I want to make the IoT chapter of that phone book diminish. And the way to diminish that is to remediate the problems, okay. not just alert people to them. So by remediating, we're fixing the problems and we're fixing those with software updates. And our early enterprise adopters, I'm happy to say, are actually willing to use our product to update those devices. And that was probably my biggest risk at the startup is, was will they actually hit the update button? Right. Sure. And sure is yes, they will. And so that was a big risk for me is, okay, I'm going to give these guys, guys the ability to update the software, but will they actually do it? And the answer is yes, they will. Well, but I think part of the reason they're doing that is because you've had such a long history in this space, right? As a good guy in the space. I, I would hope so. You know, I, 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 I do have a network and a long history with a lot of, you know, a lot of people in industry and customers that have come up, they've come up through their careers. I've come up through my careers and um, uh, also, you know, working uh, on wall street in the nineties means sure. that a, a lot of my buddies are still there. So I do know a lot of people and I've been around the space for quite a long time. And so that um, I, I think uh, does, does, does give me some credibility versus, you know, using someone, something from someone unknown or, without without a history um and people are cautious as to what they'll put on their network that's for sure no that makes a lot of sense thanks for listening to building the future this show is heard by more than a million people monthly in over 15 markets worldwide including silicon valley kevin horrick's guests are leading business owners successful entrepreneurs and merchandisers worldwide now your brand has an opportunity to tap into this dedicated and active group of business people who are looking for places to invest and the right opportunities to support find out how you can get involved at buildingthefutureshow.com i'm curious though to maybe dive a little bit deeper into the actual company itself how did you guys actually get these first few versions built? Did you raise some money? Did you self-fund? Walk us through that kind of journey. Yeah, we, we raised a little bit. You know, so okay. funding has changed. Plus, fun, funding has changed. Okay. Now, my first startup, my first startup, it was all about having the biggest Series A. Right. And I actually, I honestly think that's an error some entrepreneurs make okay. for some guys out. Like bigger is better. 
it's not necessarily the case because no matter if you raise, I think I raised something like $35 million from my wow. Series A. It was ginormous Series A. It was the biggest Series A, I think, in the history of the Southeast in wow. tech. Wow. And um, I was like, okay, that's great. I'm like, but you know what? The money, it doesn't matter if you raise $5 million or $25 million. The money gets spent. Yeah, um, interesting. And, and so I encourage other entrepreneurs to raise kind of what they need, not necessarily what they can sure. in the early stages. Um, and um, certainly once you get some good investors on board, they're not going to leave you hanging um, when you need money or you get to that next round, assuming you're doing what you need to do. Sure. Um, and so the, the trend today is, I think, to raise larger seed rounds and then wait till you've got some revenue and customer validation under your belt before you go and use that one pitch bullet at the uh, uh, over on Sand Hill Road. And so, um, you know, we've raised capital and we're, you know, wrapping up our seed round before we get, we do a series eight. So we're operating on seed capital. And when we've had gaps in seed capital, I self, I've self funded or bootstrapped the company. Gotcha. Um, and so, so we've got about, we got, probably a total of 10 employees, mostly engineers, very low burn rate, very sure. lean. Sure. And, you know, the goal is, you know, let's, um, let's take customer feedback along the way uh, because we do have this long history and, and getting that customer feedback. Yes, I'll do this. No, I don't want that. Um, has allowed us to doubt in. So we can now take something to, to our early enterprise beta customers and say, you know, okay, let's, let's, let's install it. Let's run it and get some feedback. And then, and then as we iterate, we'll come back next year with a finalized product and we have something we can actually sell. Interesting. No, I, I think that's, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious though, to get your thoughts on why this is so important. I, I don't, like we kind of talked about before, I don't really want to just like try to scare people, but I also want to get them thinking about why this is so important. So how do you kind of explain it to people that maybe don't understand or don't think it's really something they should care about? Yeah, so a common misconception is who wants to hack into my refrigerator and why should I care? Yeah. Nobody wants to hack into your refrigerator. Sure. They want to hack into your refrigerator to execute what's called a pivot. Yeah. And a pivot allows them to get onto your PC. Mm-hmm. And once they're on their PC, then they can steal your credentials to your bank account, your Bitcoin wallet, or what have you. So the IoT is the soft underbelly of the network today because it is, people aren't passing it. They're not even saying passwords on things, and they're definitely not securing it. And it becomes the easiest way for a bad guy to break into a network. And so we're seeing, we, we saw two new, just two, in the last two weeks, we saw two new IoT botnets, one of them actually coming out of core, which is very sophisticated. So literally a botnet coming out of the dark web to attack the IoT. It's very sophisticated. It's, and historically, we've seen IoT botnets kind of do annoying things or, or serious damage. So the Mirai botnet was was kind of the first big IOT botnet. And the Mirai botnet is the botnet that took down Twitter for a day. Wow. That's pretty serious. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you can take, take out Twitter, one of the biggest 
premises on the internet. That's a powerful uh, IoT botnet. But again, it was a denial of service. They were down for a day, caused some damage. They scrambled. It was it was dealt with. Um, another common use of botnets today is in mining of cryptocurrency. Sure. And that's that's annoying. So you go and reboot it, and they're off there. But now we're starting to see things like persistence. So. Now it's not only does it affect your router, but after you reboot your router, it's still there. Sure. And it's not there to be a denial of service agent or mine cryptocurrency. It's there to steal information. Sure. And that, that those are the new types of attacks we're seeing using IoT as the tip of the spear to get in and sophisticated capabilities um, to get data out. And that's where the real value is. So no, you know, I mean, do, do hackers care about your refrigerator? No. Do some weirdos want to monitor your baby cam? Yeah, maybe. But that's not the real threat. Yeah. The real threat is the pivot. And the pivot is, okay, I'm in. Now I get to the soft, chewy center of the network. I'm, on, I'm inside this guy's network. Now what am I going to I can do whatever I want. Yeah, I, I know. And I, I keep going back to this, uh, but... Like I mentioned a few times already, I've spent some time kind of learning this stuff for, for the white hat side of things, just to be clear. Um, and it's actually quite wild how easy it is to do, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you take our app and run it at your friend's house, you'd be surprised at, at how, especially if they're a civilian, right? They're they're not an IT guy. Yeah. What, what type of... Uh, what type of vulnerability you'll see. And whenever I go to a dinner dinner party and Sonos isn't working right, I'm the guy who has to fix it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, that's, you know, my favorite question is, okay, where's the router? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, okay, we're really starting at a baseline here. Yeah, exactly, right? I, I know. So, uh, wow, keep going, though. So uh, uh, well, maybe we should update your software, too. And, like, um so I am excited to be able to give away this consumer product because sure. I think it will get mind share and get a lot of users. And I think it will also be a good part of the dialogue when I'm pitching a new concept of an IoT security product. I think selling to millennials, I bet they'll install the app while I'm, while I'm on the phone and, you know, hopefully they'll run it at work and say, whoa, there's a lot of stuff here like printers or copiers and coffee pots and all these things that are IoT connected. Keurig has an enterprise connected device now. Um, wow. I, have they thought about security? I seriously doubt it. Yeah. Do we want to, we don't want to, obviously we don't want someone to brick the Keurig machine, but, um, <laughs> um, you know, that would be bad. Yeah. However, you know, it probably needs updates. And, yeah. and so, and, and, and so I think we've found a good niche here. Um, and, you know, there are other companies that have done this and been very successful. Tanium is a company that basically updates Windows and Linux computers and it's got a six and a half billion dollar valuation of the most wow. valuable private cybersecurity company out there. Um, and, you know, I, I want to do the same thing. I want to I want to patch things, not computers. Sure. And I want to do it because it's a hard problem. Patching computers, is, it's, it's already been done. Yeah, I like fair. blue. I like blue sky. I like new, 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 new ideas where there aren't competitors yet, and the, and the, it's um, I can you know have to invent new technologies. I don't want to follow somebody else's idea. No, I I totally get that. So I, I'm curious though, 
to get your thoughts on the actual space. I've read stuff online that basically the cybersecurity industry is one of the few industries that basically has a zero unemployment rate and it'll probably be like that for generations or at least the next kind of handful of decades. That might be a little bit crazy, but what are your thoughts on on that and the state of kind of the industry? I, I mean, I use that same statistic all, all the time. Okay, interesting. Uh, I, I think there are, there are a couple of... Uh, so one stat that sticks in my mind, I think it was 2008. Okay. Cybercrime eclipsed the world narcotics trade in wow. value. Wow. So for 10 years, cybercrime has been a bigger financial problem than drugs. Wow. Which look, is look at all crazy, the resources right? we throw the yeah. resources we throw at the drug war. It, uh, if we threw a fraction of those at cybersecurity, um, yeah, we'd probably be a bit further ahead. Bad guys make more money than good guys in cybersecurity. That's a problem. Not just in like individual salaries, but the 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 overall cybersecurity industry in general generates less revenue than cyber criminals do. Yeah, it's wild, right? But what's your thoughts on I've heard and um that you can make just as much money if not more being a white hat in the, you know, cybersecurity space instead of kind of going black hat where traditionally I think people made a lot more money. So, in some cases if you have to some people just do what they have to do, right? For for better or worse, it's just, but I think you can really make a really good living now being kind of one of the good guys. Have you thought, or do you agree oh, with that? Oh, ab- absolutely. No, I would not advocate uh, signing up to be a cyber criminal. It's just unfortunate that uh, it, you've got, we've got a, a crime where the upside is unlimited and yeah. the downside, the downside is pretty well bound. The odds are if you live in certain countries that you're not going to go to jail. Sure. Um, that being the case, our adversaries, right? The cyber criminals, there's, there are a lot of resources being spent to combat that. And yeah. so, and it is not too late in any career to pick up being a, a cybersecurity expert. The, one of my favorite sources for cybersecurity experts is coming out of the U.S. military. So folks were coming out of the military, coming out of their tour, um, you know, because they have security drilled into them, yeah, um, um, you know, they make, I love hiring veterans and, um, I think it's a great source for IT security and it's had a great influence on, um, our employment base. So that's a great, a great source for hiring. And I always encourage other startups to look there as well. Uh, the, um, um, uh, there's a lot of training available and one industry I really like um, that's really transforming emerging markets where people might have gone to the dark side um, is the concept of crowdsourced vulnerability research or crowdsourced bug hunting. Interesting. Um, like Bug Crowd, for example, really was a, a game changer um, in this space where they companies can put their software online and pay a bounty. Right. So whoever figures out how to hack it sure. first. Well, I think so, like Google does that, right? And a bunch of other companies. Like if you hack Google into Chrome that, or Chromebook or something, you get you can make like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Fair? You can make a living. The yeah. Pentagon does it now. So the Pentagon. So you know, it was unthinkable twenty years ago to think sure. you could get paid to hack the Pentagon, but yeah. they they put 
they put it their software online now before it goes to production. And I was at a, a conference in uh, Singapore. Okay. And I, I kind of got there to speak at the speaking part, and I and I was there for the training part. And there are a lot of guys there from Indonesia and Malaysia spending a lot of money to get trained on how to find web vulnerabilities. And I said, why are you doing this? You know, just don't see the market where you are. They said, oh, no, we want to win bug competitions. That's how we make a living. Interesting. Wow. It's just awesome that, that we have taken this problem and crowdsourced it and created jobs in parts of the world where really they couldn't get a job other than, you know, working in a call center, maybe. Sure. Um, and that, so we can create these high value, um, highly skilled labor positions in, in emerging markets um, and really tap their talent to, to add to the cybersecurity solution and be part of the problem. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, so for people that are maybe looking to get some training in the space, is there anything that you kind of recommend? In my opinion, there's a ton of free stuff even on YouTube. Yeah, I mean, I think there's free stuff online. I think there are um, a couple of uh, certifications. Sure. It's a security uh, certification from Cali Linux. Okay. Um, that's well-recognized. CISSP is another well-recognized one. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of getting kind of less and more expensive. But the big conferences like uh, Black Hat and DEF CON always have trainings. Um, and, um, uh, I, you know, those are some of the certifications that are well-recognized. But a quick kind of search can find certification options that are in your price range sure. um, from free to uh, as good as a college degree and um, and and you know uh, open up that migration into this great field that pays well and is always challenging and interesting but it's really one of the few jobs where you truly get to face something different every day sure um, even that the entry-level position in the security operations center up to being a CEO you know, it's always it's it's always fresh and exciting, and and I'm just feel very fortunate that my hobby is my career. Sure. Well, and it's been like that for decades, right? Yeah. No, that's that's really great, man. But we're we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So, do you want to close with mentioning where people can get more information about you guys and where they can actually go download the apps and, and play with them? We will make available access to the beta of the Phosphorus uh, iOS and Android apps on phosphorus.io slash future. Okay. You can sign up there and we'll send you links for installation for um, our test flight version, our beta for iOS or our uh, a link to download our uh, Android product before we go live in the stores. And that will allow you to scan your network, whether at home or at work, and um, uh, uh, determine if you've got vulnerabilities and fix them. And we'd love feedback for, from early users. And um, we'll make available the ability to submit new devices. We put the top couple hundred IoT devices in there, but we're always looking for crazy stuff we haven't seen before. Um, you know, we're adding in devices from the healthcare industry yeah, and from the industrial oh, control, <laughs> but there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of you know, neat things you never think, um, that, that, that are, they're going online and, and, uh, people are connecting to raspberry Pis, et cetera. Sure. So we'd love feedback on that again, phosphorus.io slash future. Perfect. Chris, while well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day, man. All right. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.